welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar interview leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here are your hosts, Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar. All right, in this week's episode of the Breakout Growth Podcast, Ethan Gar and I chat with April Dunford. She's the author of two best selling books, Obviously Awesome, and her latest book, Sales Pitch. So we knew April was obviously awesome when she spoke at the Growth Hackers Conference several years ago, and everyone instantly loved her. She was a very successful marketing and operations executive at companies like IBM and Nortel before she took her passion for positioning into her own consulting practice, where she helps companies around the world define their unique value of their products. So Ethan, what were your big takeaways from this conversation? Well, April made a really strong case that nobody really knows how to build a sales pitch. And, um, you know, essentially she says that marketers have been taught storytelling. That's it's great. And it works for marketing, but it's not right for sales. And her new book appropriately, appropriately titled sales pitch, you know, digs into that and focuses on how companies can differentiate themselves specifically in that sales process, which I think is going to be super valuable for a lot of our, our audience. You know, we both, you and I, we both bring messaging and positioning into the work we do. I would say it's foundational to our coaching and advising work. Um, it's so, you know, getting your your message right matters. So, uh, you know, I thought this was great for you and I, because I, I think it challenged some of our own assumptions about how positioning is supposed to work. Right. Yeah. We, we both have our own processes um, and it's usually one of the first things that we're, we're digging into. Why do customers love these products and, and how can we really tap into that with positioning and messaging? Um, but again, April, a lot of the things that she says are not so obvious. And it's funny yeah. that she has a book called Obviously Awesome <laughs> because she, she is awesome, but a lot of the things that she's tapping into aren't so obvious. And, and a lot of times they, they are even uh, things that may not be popular to common beliefs. And so at one point, for example, I asked her about positioning and product market fit. And she basically said she doesn't like the concept of product market fit. I know. And, and you're the product yeah, that, market fit guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That could have wounded me deeply, but um, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, when someone says something that, that seems not, not in line with my thinking, I a lot of times want to dig into that because there there's going to be a fresh perspective there that that hopefully will take my own thinking to the next level. So she wasn't just saying it um, to be controversial for controversy's sake. She really triggered a I thought a, a spirited discussion that I think is going to be thought provoking for our audience as well. And that's that's one of the real real goals of this podcast is you know we want to we want to treat it. Like we, we forget that we're actually recording a podcast and instead it's like we're sitting around in a coffee shop with someone who's got a really interesting perspective and we're just, we're just digging into it to, to expand our own thinking. And I, I think we really nailed it on this one. Yeah. I feel like when, when you and I are, are learning, like we're having fun and hopefully that's fun and translates for, you know, into good conversation for the, for our audience and really good takeaways. So, I mean, look, in a world of competition and noise, positioning really does matter a lot. Um, you have to stand out. And that same willingness to speak her mind and take you know, somewhat contrary positions, I think is probably why April is so effective and why her approach is so effective. You know, I loved when she explained how you need to be deliberate in who you position yourself against and how in sales, sometimes you know, you're not losing to your direct competitor, you're losing to the indecisiveness and the status quo at the company you're pitching to. 
Yeah, definitely. She, you know, she mentioned a couple of times a statistic that's related to that, which was uh, 60% of deals that are started just are never finished. And the reason the ball keeps kind of getting kicked down the field and it loses momentum is because of that indecisiveness. And um, if people don't know who they're competing against, um, then then you're not going to be able to have the best sales pitch out there to get the deal done. And so there's there's a lot to to think about and unpack in this conversation for sure. Yeah, and I, I think even if you know you're a PLG and you're not doing you know traditional sales, you'll actually learn a lot from her just her thinking on this. So yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation, and I actually just started reading sales pitch. I know I should have read it before the interview, but. Um, uh, I'm getting into it now. And um, it, to be honest with you, it's good from the very first page when April says, this isn't a book about selling, it's about helping customers buy, which I think is very aligned with the way you and I approach the world from you know from a growth perspective. It's like, what is value for the end user? How do we tap into that and 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 create something of, of you know that that can we can drive growth? And so it was really cool. I, I love the conversation. Yeah, I just I wish she had her books on uh, audio because last I checked they weren't, and uh, that's my preferred way to consume <laughs> books. I spend enough time sitting and staring at a computer that uh, when I'm when I'm consuming information, I like to go out on a walk, get a little exercise, and some fresh air. But uh, anyway, I, let's not give it all away in, in the introduction here. Let's uh, let's get started. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, April, welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're excited to have you on. And I'm also joined by my co-host, Ethan Gar. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Sean. Hey, April. Let's get it going. Hey, Ethan. <laughs> yeah, so as I, I was uh, telling you guys before we got started, I, uh, I did 21 hours of flying yesterday coming back from... Uh, from Egypt. And so I'm a, I'm a little bit, uh, time zoned out, but <laughs> this is the time of day when it tends to, when I tend to be in pretty good shape by this afternoon, I'm going to be, uh, I'm sure way, way worse for the wear, but taking a nap. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, um, fortunately I think it's still, uh, still good daylight hours in Egypt now. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm on that, that time zone probably more than anything, but, um, we'll jump right into it. So, uh, April, I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time because we, I remember we had you at the Growth Hackers Conference a lot of years ago now. and um, A lot of years ago. Yeah. I didn't even know really too much what to expect when, when I invited you to the conference, but um, I remember just the audience loving it. And um, you know, th- I, think, I think, especially in a conference where you have a lot of people that are into data and testing, that sometimes positioning, uh, which was the topic that you spoke on, may seem a little soft and, and uh, less powerful as, as a lever of growth. But by the time you got done talking, I think people looked at it and said, wow, uh, positioning is really important. And, uh, and you gave them some good tools to get started. So um, maybe uh, and unless you recall speaking on, on something a little different than positioning, and I'm just totally messed up in my head there. Oh, um, no, positioning is my jam. You got yeah, that right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, <laughs> how, how do you actually define it for anyone who's, um, who, who's not familiar with positioning? How do you define positioning? Yeah, I I look at positioning this way, like positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at delivering something, some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Mm -hmm. Like that. So especially the well-defined, I think uh, in the startup world, we we get caught up in uh, 
the whole world is my customer <laughs> because especially if you're pitching it's so bad. Yeah, you're pitching venture capitalists and you want to define your market as as eight zillion dollars and and you don't want to kind of niche it down. Well, you but, know what? This is actually a big this is actually one of the reasons I think venture back companies really struggle with positioning is that your positioning for venture capitalists is going to be different than your positioning for customers. And so if you spend a lot of time, you know, raising money and then you turn around and you say, well, I've got this great pitch and it worked really well with the VCs. I'm just going to use that pitch when I go talk to customers. That is generally not a good thing to <laughs> right, do. <right. laughs> like they just, the two audiences have completely different definitions of value. They have different timeframes that they're thinking about. They're, you know, they're just really, really different things. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a, an interesting topic to kind of come back to uh, if we've got some time to, to th this idea of can you compartmentalize these things well and and how do you how do you go from we're taking over the world to here's why you should care about this thing we've just built on a kind of one to one level. But Ethan, I, I, I uh, want to bring you in on the conversation quickly. Um, go for it. <laughs> Yeah, April. So I believe I was actually in the audience at that uh, Growth Hackers Conference many years ago. So uh, I um, I think I also was one of the people who thought, wow, this is really interesting stuff. So um, we wanted to jump in with uh, your new book. It's called Sales Pitch. And um, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the book, how it, maybe it's different from your first book. Uh, you could tell us about Obviously Awesome as well. And uh, tell, us, tell us what this book is about. Sure. So my background is positioning, like positioning is my jam. I've been doing that forever, it feels like. And so the first book that I published was called Obviously Awesome, and it was very focused on how do we actually do positioning? So a lot has been written about positioning as a concept and something that you want to make sure you get right inside your company. But before I had written my book, I felt like there just wasn't anything out there that was designed to help companies actually do it, like a step-by-step -step process to say, hey, this is how you do it, one, two, three, four, five. And so the book was really focused on that. Um, I had transitioned from working in-house as a VP marketing to working as a consultant, helping people with their positioning. And so the book also did double duty as a way for people to get their arms around what I do as a consultant. So I had been working with companies doing that. And one of the things that really struck me is that when we work through the component pieces of the position, of positioning, there's two things we want to do with it right away. So the first thing that everyone wants to do is they want to take the differentiated value that we defined in the positioning and turn that into messaging for the homepage and all your marketing stuff that you're going to do. But the other thing is if you're a B2B company and you have a sales team, you want to take that positioning and translate it into a story that the salespeople can use, especially in a first call where a a qualified prospect comes in, they know a bit about what you do, but they don't know much. And you're giving them the big, you know, here's what we do and here's why you should care speech. So in the work I was doing with companies, after I had my book out, I felt like we really nailed working through the positioning part. But if I just went away and didn't help them with the sales pitch part, the marketing team was good. They could take the differentiated value from the positioning and go run with that. But the sales team would be in in the positioning workshop and be like, yep, yep, positioning, get it, yep, agree with that's the differentiated value, that's who we're going after, this is the market we're going to win, yep, agree with all of it. And then they would walk out and then they get to their teams and they'd be like, well, how does that change my pitch? I'm not really sure. And so 
my assumption when I wrote the first book was that most companies, if you had a sales team and you were already doing a sales pitch, you had a structure that that sales pitch was built on. And it turned out that that is not true. <laughs> In fact, that has not been true. I've worked with probably about 250 companies now, and I have only worked with one that had a sales pitch structure that they could actually explain to me and say, this is why the slides are organized in this way. This is how the story arc goes. This is why the demo looks like this. In fact, what most companies had were just kind of this pitch that had been around since like the year of the flood and nobody knows where it came from. And every time there was a new release, we'd add one slide, we'd take one out or we miss with it a little bit, or they didn't have any slides at all. And what they're doing is straight product walkthrough straight feature function. I got 12 drop down menus. I'm going to click on every single one of those 12 drop down menus and explain every single thing. And we're not doing any positioning whatsoever. So it occurred to me that the reason people didn't have a structure for a sales pitch is that there isn't an accepted structure for a sales pitch. And I had one that I'd been using from back when I was a VP marketing, I used to do the positioning and then we'd turn it into a sales pitch. And interestingly, it came from some work I did with various companies, but IBM was one of them. And IBM is one of the few companies I've ever worked with that does have a structure for a sales pitch. So I borrowed some of those concepts and came up with my own structure. So the new book, Sales Pitch, is an attempt to solve that problem. Again, we have positioning. We're trying to translate it into a story that the sales team can use. That's the problem the book is trying to solve. Got it. So uh, go ahead, Ethan. I was just going to ask, I mean, that's, it makes sense that that's a that's a challenge but do you find that um this underlying story already like lives in the positioning that um that you were developing and obviously awesome is it is it is it more about translating that into into storytelling verbal storytelling or is it uh, or is it something completely different from your perspective so here's what i think i think that marketers in general have been taught storytelling structures that don't work for sales. So for the most part, the companies that I've worked with, marketing has been taught some kind of a flavor of hero's journey. And so if you understand hero's journey, or if you read that book, Building a Story Brand, uh, it's this idea that, you know, we have a hero and the hero is the customer and, you know, they go on a quest, an epic quest, and they encounter problems and then they meet a guide and the guide is you. And the guide is then going to uh, show them, you know, how to get what they want and deliver them to the promised land and avoid them going someplace bad. And so there's this whole arc, I'm butchering it. <laughs> 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 and so and this works really good for things like a customer case study and you're trying to show here was the customer before and then these things happened and this is what the customer looks after like afterwards and you know this is a uh, hollywood stories all follow this arc uh, but for sales sales needs a whole bunch of other stuff like this is not a story about entertainment this is a story about look customer you have choices there's lots of choices and the customer is trying to figure out what are good choices or bad choices for me? What should I pay attention to? What should I not pay attention to? Why pick you over the other things that I could pick? That's a totally different story than Star Wars. <laughs> it's just not the same. <laughs> and so if we wanted to build a story specifically for sales, it would have a set of components 
that your average marketer is probably not thinking about. Like your average marketer is not thinking about how do we do discovery in a first call? Your marketer is not thinking about necessarily how do I paint a picture in the minds of customers about the whole market and where we fit. Most of the marketing and sales stuff I see out there with SaaS companies is all about us as a company. Here's us, here's the value we deliver. It's amazing, you should pick us. But a buyer is not trying to answer that question. A buyer is not trying to answer the question, what's so great about you? The buyer is trying to answer the question, why pick you over the other guys? And the sales pitch has to answer that. And which, which one leads? Like um, if you're, if you mentioned that you do workshops, for example, do you, do you do a workshop where you're bringing in sales and marketing together to figure this out? Or does, does marketing figure it out and then it's translated for sales or vice versa? Well, I think marketing, figuring it out and having it translated to sales is what got us in this mess in the first yeah, place, okay. honestly. So I think that's a bad idea. I think, so I actually think the first thing we have to do is figure out the inputs to the sales pitch. The inputs to the sales pitch are, uh, who's my competition? How are we different from them? What is the value we could deliver that no one else can? What is our definition of a really good fit customer? What is the market we intend to win? That's the component pieces of positioning. So in the work that I do, we have a cross-functional team. We've got marketing, sales, product, the CEO, anybody else who we think is key together in a room. We're going to work through those component pieces of positioning. And then once we have that, then we can map those pieces to a sales pitch that works for the sales for the sales team. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's so funny that you and I have both just for our conversation before this uh, call kicked off. Um, we were both talking about how important workshops are. And uh, my reason of coming to workshops is exactly sounds like the same reason as yours is that um, you can you can teach people. Uh, the tools um, individually, but when they come together and apply them in a way that uh, hopefully is is uh, appropriate for the company and for the opportunity and 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 driving results, um, a lot of times it's it, that's where it falls apart is trying to trying to bring people together with different perceptions and uh, in a workshop format you can through hours or or in my case I do generally a, a full day together. You you can actually make some of those key decisions and and uh, have that shared ownership because you're making those decisions um, together as opposed to one group making it and kind of dictating it to the other. Totally, totally true. Like in my opinion, most weak positioning comes from the different parts of the organization having slightly different ideas about those component pieces. Like the vast majority of software companies, when I walk in, if I ask product and sales. Who do we compete with? I get totally different answers. And so how can we figure out how to position against our competition if we can't even agree on who we're actually positioning against? So I think the only way to solve that is cross-functional stuff. Let's get everybody together. It, the, the trick is if we're going to get everybody together, we can't just put them all together in a room and be like, okay, why does everybody love our stuff? <laughs> I got to get everybody together and there's got to be some kind of a process or a methodology to work through that to the best of our ability takes the opinions out of it. And so my work is very focused on that. It's a, you know, my core offering is a three-day workshop, but it's kind of half days because people get really burnt out in these exercises because, you know, a whole day is a lot. But we spend two days on the positioning and then we spend the last day 
translating the positioning into a sales pitch. So we walk out of there and everybody's in agreement and alignment. This is who we compete with. This is the value we can deliver. No one else can. Best fit customer looks like this. This is the market we're going to win. And here's how we tell the story. Now we're good. Now we can go run everything. Obviously, this podcast is about growth as the Breakout Growth Podcast. How does how do you see um, positioning relate to growth? Like, where does this fit in? Well, so positioning, in my opinion, is kind of foundational to a whole bunch of stuff. Like almost everything we do in marketing and sales and growth has positioning at the foundation. Like we can't really figure a lot of this stuff out before we all get an agreement on, well, you know, who do we got to beat in order to win a deal? And how do we win a deal? <laughs> like what's the value we can deliver that no one else can? Like what's our secret sauce here? And then, oh, by the way, like we're not a best fit for everybody. We're a best fit for certain kinds of buyers. So how does that work? How do we define that? We have to actually get agreement on all that stuff before we can then say, okay, now what's the best way to acquire customers for this thing. It actually comes later, in my opinion. This is kind of foundational stuff. If the positioning is weak, then everything we do downstream is weak. Like, I used to be repeat vice president of marketing. So I would get hired and everybody be like, okay, April, you know, go out there and do that lead generation thing. And I'd be like, well, if we don't make sure the positioning's solid first, then I'm just doing a bunch of stuff on top of this foundation made out of sand. <laughs> and how do I know any of it's going to be good? And so usually what I would do is I'd say, well, look, I'm going to spend a couple of weeks and I'm going to go hang out with sales because I'm always working at companies with sales. I'm going to go hang out with sales. I'm going to find out what's happening in sales. Now, if the positioning is weak, you hear it on first sales calls. It's actually kind of easy to identify. So you go into a listen to a whole bunch of first sales calls. If you start hearing these telltale signs of weak positioning, then you can work on getting the team convinced that maybe we should look at the positioning first. Let's do that first, and then we'll worry about all the other stuff later. I just want to dive into that. You know, you bring up a good point that trying to be everything to everyone is kind of, um, <laughs> that is not a good recipe for success. I recently worked with um, actually a former colleague of Sean's uh, from years ago. And one of the things uh, we were working at for with a company that does enterprise sales. And one of the first things he said is like, guys, our goal here shouldn't be to close every deal. And I was thinking, well, that's probably something that uh, you don't hear often. But he was saying, We're, we can't be everything to everyone. We have to be the right things to someone. How, how in, your, in your process, do you figure out who to be the, who the right person or the right persona is to sell to? Where does that come into the process? Yeah. So um, th this thinking that not everybody is the right fit for our stuff it is better understood the higher up you go in enterprise selling. Like the bigger the deal, the more people understand that sales is a very precious resource. And we, sh you know, if it takes a year to close a deal, we shouldn't spend seven months on a deal that's never going to close. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the more you go down, the more people start thinking, oh, we should just, you know, we'll take our victim as we find them, you know, and we'll sell to everybody and then it'll be great. So having spent the bulk of my career selling bigger enterprise stuff, I think that's just kind of in my DNA to think that way. But I actually think it works for everybody. If you have a sales team, that team is very expensive. And we lose a good proportion of deals. I mean, if you look at the data of this, 60% of the deals that we, that we start, we do not finish. 
<laughs> that's not even counting wins and losses. Like, so it's a game of numbers. So if I only have so much sales resources, then I only, I only have so much to, I only have, like, I really want to have that sales resource applied to folks that I think are going to close. So that's one thing. So how do you actually figure out who's a good fit? In the work I do, I'm generally working with companies that are in market. They've already sold a bunch of stuff. I mean, they're doing millions of revenue. And the key to that is already there. We just need to unlock it. So the way I like to do it is we start with, so who do I, who do I have to position against? So that includes the status quo and anything else that lands on a short list against you. So if it's a reasonably big ticket B2B sales purchase process, they're not just going to buy you. They're going to they're going to look at a short list of things. So there's status quo, there's the short list. And then I say, well, what have we got that the competitors don't have capability-wise of the product and capabilities of the company? So it's feature function of the product, capabilities of the company. I can make a great big long list of this stuff. And then I can go down that list and for every single capability we've got, the question is, so what? Like, why does a customer care? Like, what is the value that capability enables for a customer's business? And as I'm working down that list, what you will naturally see is there are a set of themes that will emerge. And so that's good. What we want to get to is not 9,000 points of value. We want two or three value buckets or value themes. If we build it up that way, what we end up with is differentiated value. So that is the value that I can deliver that none of those other competitors, including the status quo, can. So at the end of that step, I should be able to say, look, we're the only company on the planet that delivers a combination of this plus this plus this, and the features that enable that are tucked in underneath. Now, once I have that, then I can say, okay, we're the only folks that can do that. The next question is, well, who cares a lot about that? And what are the characteristics of a target account that make them really, really care a lot about the value that only you can deliver? That's where we should be focusing our marketing and sales resources, because that's the place where we can win. <laughs> if they don't care much about the secret sauce that we've got, then we're likely going to lose that deal because somebody else has got some secret sauce that they care about more. So if we can tightly define that, then we can tightly focus. Here's where marketing and sales should spend their time. Right. Yeah, you, you had said that you uh, typically are focusing on uh, businesses that are already generating, say, millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, have you spent much time thinking about um, like kind of brand new early stage businesses um, where where you know the, the the entire business is initially built off a set of guesses, and maybe there's some some validation for some of those guesses, but uh, when you're when you're starting to say who needs the value, what are we good at? Um, until you have it in people's hands, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to answer those questions. Exactly so, it. Yeah. That's so I'm exactly curious how you, how you think this fits in on that type of a journey. Yeah. So here's how I think about it. Um, before we've sold a bunch, so either the thing is still just an idea or we've launched it. We got a handful of customers. We don't really see any pattern in these customers. So we don't really know. Um, in my opinion, what you have at that moment is a positioning thesis. So your thesis says, I think this is who I compete with. I think this is what the, the capabilities I have that those competitors don't have. Therefore, I believe this is my differentiated value. 
And these are the people that are going to care a lot about that value. Therefore, this is the market I'm going to go in. But you don't know. It's just a thesis. <laughs> and so if you've done your homework well and you've done customer discovery, which almost now nobody does, but let's pretend that you did. So you did good customer discovery. You did all that stuff you were supposed to do, whatever. You got a thesis, but you still don't know. And having been like when I was a VP marketing, I was involved in 16 different product launches across my seven startups that I worked at as an in-house VP marketing. And not once was our thesis correct. <laughs> sometimes we were really far off. Sometimes we're just a little bit off. But for the most part, we were wrong about something. And so usually it was you know, the value that we thought was going to be really interesting to these customers, it turned out it was slightly different or the kind of customer we thought that was going to be really crazy for this thing. It turned out, eh, they're not quite that. It's, you know, somebody a little bit different. And so then you got to adjust it. So I think that first wave of customers is where you're validating that positioning thesis. Like, did the people that you think were going to love it, love it? Or was it something else? And so what I find is a lot of companies, they're not thinking about positioning at the beginning, but if you were and you wrote it down and said, this is the thesis for every deal that you're losing, that you thought, according to the thesis, you should have got it. It should have been great. You should be asking yourself, well, why not? There must be some kind of an assumption baked into this thing that isn't true. Right. So we should figure that out. <laughs> yeah. And then, so I think related to, to all of that, then at what point? Should they should be, they be thinking about investing significantly in building sort of uh, brand recognition around around yeah. some positioning that is likely to be wrong? Can you can you over invest in in promoting uh, some some positioning up front? And, and what's the alternative if you don't over invest? Yeah, so I th I think the alternative is. You know, I think you need to really think about this first wave of customers as we're validating the positioning thesis. And then at some point, you'll get to a point where it feels pretty validated. And so you'll be able to say, you know what, like we're we're pretty clear on what the definition of a best fit customer looks like. And we're pretty clear on what that differentiated value is that we can deliver. And so once we get to the point where we can say that, then that's a really good point for you to just tighten up the positioning and run right at it. If you think the, you know, the universe of best fit customers is good enough to meet your financial obligations for the next year or two, tighten it up, run right at it. I've got a terrible analogy. I'm going to give it to you. So here's my terrible analogy. It's like, let's say you're a fisherman and you invented this fishing net and so your thesis is, I got this world's greatest tuna fishing net. That is for tuna fishermen. It's got special features. And I'm going to make this tuna fishing net. It's going to be amazing. That's my positioning thesis. But if I launch it as a tuna fishing net, I don't know, man. Maybe it's going to work and maybe it doesn't going to work. Right, right. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. So a better way to do it is to launch it and keep the positioning kind of loose and just say, you know what, man? It's a net for fish, all kinds of big fish. I don't know. And then you're going to run around and get your first wave of customers. And, you know, having loose positioning isn't going to stop you from doing that because you're still going to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one and, you know, getting your buddies to try it out and getting people on your board to introduce you to people and shaking the tree to get this first wave of customers. And then let's get all the fishermen using it and then let's just see what they pull up. And maybe what happens is they pull it up and they go, Ooh, you know what? This is full of grouper here. I never really <laughs> thought about the grouper, but now that I know I got, you know, I actually got the world's greatest grouper fishing net. And now I can just zoom right in on that. 
and go run at the grouper market. And yeah, maybe I get tuna next year or the year after. But right now I know I can get grouper. So I'm just going to go get grouper. So or I think even it, be- it turns out to be a fashion statement and not something <laughs> to catch fish. In. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? So I think the big thing here is, you know, people come to me and they're trying to hire me when they got like two customers. And I'm like, this is a waste of money because all we're going to do is come up with a positioning thesis. We don't know. There's too many unknowns. And so what you should do is spend the next six months or however long it takes, get a whole bunch of customers. And when you start seeing the patterns and who loves your stuff and why, then that's a really good time. If you still don't know how to tighten up the positioning, then you could bring someone like me in or whatever, or, you know, and then spend some money launching it and taking a run at it. But before that, it's crazy town. Like you don't actually want to spend a whole bunch of money doing acquisition because you don't know who you're going after. Right. So in startup lingo, I think we're, we're essentially saying product market fit there. So yeah, essentially product validate market product market thing, fit. But yeah. You don't like that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know why I hate it? Can I just go a little yeah, rant? Sure. So the reason I don't like product market fit as a thing is because nobody knows how to get it and nobody knows when they have it. And so, you know, it's such a nebulous concept. And I was always the vice president of marketing and everybody agrees what you do when you have it. What you have, when you have it, you go to vice president of marketing and say, smash your foot on the gas, lady, let's go, grow, grow, grow. And so as the person that was on the receiving end of that, I was always thinking, well, what we're actually looking for is an actionable segmentation. Until I have an actionable segmentation, I can't smash my foot on the gas. So actionable segmentation is who exactly are we going after? And can we define that with enough specificity that I can build campaigns around it? Until we have that, then it doesn't matter if you have the product market fit feeling. Right. I can't do anything with it. Right. That's what I think <laughs> you, when you said I, hypothesis. I like, Go ahead, Ethan. Sorry. I feel like Sean may have come up with a question at some point that might help <laughs> companies find whether they have product market fit or not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, so I'm joking. I'm, I'm joking, but I am serious. Uh, so, I think Sean, um, Sean's question, um, his now famous product market fit question, if this product were to go away tomorrow, would you be very disappointed, somewhat disappointed or not disappointed at all, really does get to the heart of that. And I, but I do, I, I but agree I don't with know. You. Sometimes companies game that question and they, they do bad things with that question. Like they have five, they have five customers and it's their cousins and their cousins say, oh yeah, I'd be really upset if it went away. Mm-hmm. Like people are not honest with themselves with that question. You know, like I, I think the question is good, but people use it right. badly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's where you, where I, where I tend to say, you know, you want to have at least 30 responses on it. You want to have people who, who actually have used the core of the product and hopefully used it more than once. And right. yeah, if you're, if you're gaming it, then you're only, you're only doing yourself a disservice because you're giving yourself yeah. false validation and you're going to accelerate going out of business because you're trying to scale something that's built well, on this is it. And like, even that 30 thing kind of depends on the size of the deal. So recently yeah. I did some work with a company and they have four customers, Yeah, but every customer is a $10 million deal. Yeah. So it gets, it gets a little harder. So, when you know, and they're very uh, like homogeneous, like all yeah. four customers, exact same use case, exact same thing. And because the sales cycles are so long, they've got 15, 20 in the pipeline that are way beyond sure. a few months. So yeah. is, is that validated? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. So yeah, it, it doesn't, it's not a one size fits all for sure. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. Product market fit drives me crazy because everybody comes in there like, I know it because I got the feeling. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't care about your feelings. Sorry. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, April, I, uh, one of the things that I think you've pointed out a lot is that the, you know, ultimately positioning is about figuring out how you're differentiated and, you know, what's your unique value. Do you find that in working with clients, either they sometimes think that, oh, we're commoditized, so there is no differentiation or the opposite of that, like, they yeah. think they're highly differentiated on things that they're not so differentiated on. Yeah, differentiation is really interesting one. Like I've seen both of those. Um, I would say what's really interesting to me is often I get companies that are doing 10 million revenue, 20 million revenue, and they'll come and say, we have no differentiation. We're exactly like everybody else. Uh, you know, it, we're, we're exactly the same. And that just kind of blows my mind. Like every day, every day, someone is picking them over the other guys. And what they're telling me is they don't know what the reason is. And what's interesting is that often when I get into it, there's all kinds of differentiation, which is the reason why customers are picking them. But because the differentiation doesn't feel techy enough or hard enough or big enough, that internally the team is just saying, I don't know, I don't know why they pick us. They might, they must just like us. Mm -hmm. They must just like us as people. Right. <laughs> or the marketers <laughs> will better say, salespeople, yeah. Yeah, the salespeople will say, We're just so great at selling. And the marketers will say, Well, we're just so great at marketing. Or, you know, the CEO will say it's relationships, you know, and all this stuff. But then when you go to the customers, it's a totally different thing. What's interesting is when you go to sales, sales knows. But nobody talks to sales. <laughs> so you go to sales and they'll say, oh, yeah, it's three things. It's this, this, this. I, if I pitch that, we win. And you go, okay. <laughs> Maybe that's it. And it's almost like the company doesn't like that answer or they wish there was a different answer. Or I don't know what. And then but what's funny is that because those three things, nobody thinks it's important. Those three things are buried in the marketing. They're buried in the sales pitch. And the customer almost has to go on an exploration to unearth it. And then they find it and go, oh, you guys have this thing. I wish you had just told me that. So what we do in the positioning is we just pull it out, put it right in the beat put it right in the middle of the positioning and say, hey, we're the only people that can give you ABC and miracle of miracles. All the revenue goes up. So if it's not so technical for companies, is it often the relationships and how they how they manage the relationships with customers? It's very seldom that. It's very seldom that. And people will often say it's our amazing customer support. But then when you look at the sales process, nobody gets exposed to the customer support until after they bought. So how could that be the reason you bought? Um, and often it's it's not just features, but a particular combination of features. So the one feature on its own is differentiating from these two categories of competitor. But then there's another feature that's differentiating against this category of competitors. And then there's maybe a third thing. And so individually, the features don't seem like they're differentiated, but they're the only one that can provide the combination. So it's usually that. Sometimes, and people will say, yeah, but those features aren't that big of a deal. You know, this guy, these guys have it and those guys have the other one and these guys have the other one. It's like, yeah, but nobody has all three. That's why they're picking you. Um, sometimes what you've got is something that's a combination of that plus different pricing model. So sometimes the company's done something kind of creative with the pricing model, or it'll be things like, 
you're the only one with professional services and all the other companies don't have professional services, or it's the opposite. You're the only one that doesn't require professional services and everybody else does require professional services. And so the total cost of getting this thing deployed is often very, very differentiated. Some companies want the help, some companies don't want the help. And so you're fitting in the middle there somewhere. So a lot of times it's things like that. Um, but it's almost never, you know, this kind of soft relationship, customer support, all those things are important for retention, but they're not necessarily acquisition things that yeah, get you in the door. Yeah, they pick you in the first place, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So everything we've talked about kind of up to this point has been this uh, perfect world of proactivity between, it's a, it's a world between you and your customers and you figure out why they love you and you position against those. And hopefully that's well differentiated against the, the competition. But what happens in a world where the competition is positioning you for you? And I think, I think the great example there is in politics. And I, as much as I don't like politics, I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, kind of watching it from the outside. And, and uh, yeah, I know you're from Canada, but here in the United States, are, we've, we've had a uh, former president who uh, the world knows whether whether here in the United States or not and he has a unique ability to position other candidates before they even position themselves I'm talking about Donald Trump here and he you know his own party other parties like his other party positioning initially against Hillary Clinton calling her crooked Hillary which is kind of ironic considering where he stands today but uh, but sleepy Joe Biden and then and then but even even within uh, within his own party he he comes up with with nicknames I, I think uh, boring Jeb Bush was one of the first ones I remember in in <laughs> the primaries and and so um, yeah. and and these candidates really have a hard time breaking out of that that identity that he that, that he applies them because there's probably a little bit of truth to to it in some degree or there's a a belief in it being truth in some circles that he's trying to influence so i'm i'm curious how how uh you you would recommend uh when someone else tries to uh, position you do you do you respond to that do you do you just have more strength in what your positioning is um any thoughts there well, I do have thoughts about this. The first thing is that most companies are not really deliberate about their own positioning. And so if you can be very deliberate about your own positioning, part of that, part of the act of positioning where you fit in the market is positioning everybody else. So a really good sales pitch paints a picture of the market for the customer and says, you know what? there's three or four ways you could get this job done. You could pick companies that look like this and you throw a whole bunch of companies in that bucket and you throw a bunch of companies in that bucket and a bunch of companies in that bucket. And then you're like, and look, we're here. And this is why you should pick us. Now, if you are doing this well in your initial sales pitch, you have the opportunity to position everybody else. And if your competitors refuse to position themselves, meaning all they do is talk about themselves and all they do is say, here's why we're so great, but they never ever compare themselves to the competition. They never ever answer the question, why pick us over the other guys? Then you have an amazing advantage because you're painting this picture 
in the minds of customers and you're laying all these little bombs for your competition everywhere else and say, oh yeah, you're looking at IBM. Oh, that, that's legacy stuff. And I mean, it's great. Don't get me wrong. It, it's great if you just want a thing that never breaks, whatever. But are you going to get a lot of innovation out of this? No. Are you going to get whatever? No. Here's the trick on this though. It has to be truthful because if it's not truthful and the competitors get wind that you're saying something that's not truthful, then all they got to do is shine the light on that lie and you've lost all credibility in the sales process. So if you can do it in a way that's truthful, you should do it. If you got to stretch the truth or lie in it, you should avoid this. Like you should never, ever, ever stretch the truth. It kills deals so fast. So if you have a competitor that's positioning you and the positioning is a lie, great, great. It's, that's actually amazing for you. So all you have to do is go in and say, you know what we have, there are other vendors out there and they're not always totally above board. And they say things like this, and here's why that's not true. And I got to teach you, right? But I can teach you. And here's why it's not true. And if you go back to them and say that, they'll likely come back with this. I don't have to say their name. I can put them all in a bucket and say any one of these guys might say this, but when they say that, what they mean is this. And so you, buyer beware, this is what it actually means. So if, you're, if your competitor is trying to do that, that's the thing. If your competitor is trying to put you in a bucket and you belong in the bucket, <laughs> well, then you got to think about target markets. Like, so I'll give you an example. So when I was at IBM, everybody put us in the legacy bucket, man. They were like, why would you, you don't want to do business with IBM. It's just legacy stuff, blah, blah, blah. But what they didn't realize when I was at IBM is we're making almost 200 billion or whatever it was back then. It's way smaller now. But back then when I was there, it's, you know, 200 billion revenue. And we're doing that on the back of like 95 accounts. <laughs> We don't care. We right. don't care. We don't care. We don't care. They're, fr that, that, they're frying BBs at your tank. <laughs> yeah, that you're trying to sell some 50 million revenue company by saying that we're legacy. Like, we, we don't even care about those deals. <laughs> we care about these deals over there. And in our little pocket, being legacy is awesome. Being legacy is just what they want. It's safe. It's tested. It's one throat to choke. If something goes wrong, we're going to send an army of consultants in there to fix it. Like, you're not going to get fired for picking us. Like, all this stuff. And so sometimes what you've got is a competitor, you know, that's making a lot of noise about you being something and you can just ignore it because it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with you. It's just blah, 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 blah. And you're like, whatever, buddy, that's fine. You have no idea what's, what our business model is, how we go to market, who we're going after, any of this stuff. And, and you're literally trying to compete against the wrong person. Yeah. So this is kind of a, a selfish line of questioning for me because I, uh, I face this on a regular basis as the, as the guy who coined growth hacking that, um, there are a lot of people from day one who, who didn't like the term, which is, which is fine. That's, that's one of the reasons it gets attention. If I, if I had just said, uh, you know, scientific method or process based uh, growth, it would have been this kind of boring mouthful that no one would have remembered. So sort yeah. of shortcutting something that, that is a little bit of an annoying term on there. I think, uh, I can't, I can't have 
the good and the bad without expecting to piss a few people off. So that's fine. But what I have found over time is exactly the 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 credibility issue question that you're saying is that most of the people when they discredit it they're they're basically saying growth hacking is about a bunch of tricks and and doing x y and z to get people to sign up for your product when they don't really want your product or it's uh it's it's lying in marketing and and so um i think what i'm what i'm hearing there is that uh when people do that, um, it's a matter of just, just, you know, correct it. No, this is what it is. And this is what it's for. And, um, again, maybe if I didn't have a book called hacking growth, that <laughs> is a, is a popular worldwide book, maybe I wouldn't care as much about kind of protecting, protecting the, the meaning of that phrase, but I have a lot personally invested in it. So I, I, I don't want people to redefine, mm. redefine and reposition it for me. So I don't know if that's, I, I think there's, a, I think there's a couple of things you could think about with that. Like, so on the one hand, there's no such thing as having a popular concept without having a good number of detractors. Like it comes with being popular. Like, you know, you, you can't be Taylor Swift without having Taylor Swift haters, but right. <laughs> who cares about the haters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's that. I think there's a certain amount of pushback, you know, when concepts like this really catch on, like one of the ways you know it's really catching on is that some people hate it. So, so I think that's okay. That's kind of one of the things that comes with being very successful is there's people are going to show up and say, no, that's stupid. That's bad. That's, I don't like that for whatever reason. And some of it might be justified and a whole bunch of it won't be. And people are, there's going to be jealous haters. So that's a thing. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting that for you personally, maybe I'm just going to throw this out is that, um, I was having a conversation with a really smart friend of mine who's a consultant and he was talking about the, the 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 lifetime of ideas and he says you know what happens you get a really good idea an idea comes and it's good for about 10 years and then you got to do something with the idea to get it restarted and so then he gave me all these he gave me all these examples 9 million examples and so i've been thinking about this ever since i had this had this conversation with him and what we were I was trying to apply it to companies. So I was thinking about uh, HubSpot, for example, you know, invented the concept of inbound marketing. Right. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at HubSpot now. Yeah, they don't, they don't use that very much anymore. They've completely yeah. outgrown it. Why? Because inbound marketing is so successful that it's literally just turned into marketing. Like if you look at what HubSpot is doing, they're now doing the same thing that Salesforce is doing. It's a, it's a customer platform. It's, and inbound marketing is part of that or piece of that, but they don't even talk about it anymore. They don't have to because it was so successful. So the interesting thing about you and growth hacking is I might actually lean back and say, am I the king of growth hacking or am I just the king of growth? Is anybody doing anything in growth that doesn't Thanks have your fingerprints all over it? Yeah, somebody, some people call me that for positioning and I'm like, ease up, ease up. <laughs> but like, is there yeah. anything out there? Right. And, and growth is such a hot topic still right. yeah, yeah. that doesn't have your fingerprints on it. And I would maybe say, no, like who's the king of growth if it's not you? It kind of is you. So why wouldn't you just grab the crown and 
run yeah, with it. Embrace that. Yeah. As opposed to. And, and to so maybe it's time for a new book is, is the thing I would say <laughs> is that, you know, you know, maybe we don't, and maybe the positioning is we don't have to hack it anymore, buddy. Like it's, it's now growth. It's an accepted term. We all get what growth is. There's a thousand people out there talking about it. There's 15 different flavors of growth, but you're still the guy. And so I, I might actually be all right with that if yeah. I was you. And that's and, not and, going against the idea of, of, of niching where, where earlier what you've sort of said is differentiated and now at, at a certain point, maybe, maybe you kind of grab the core a little bit more. Well, again, if I, if I look at HubSpot, this is kind of how this works with companies, right? Is they, they establish the, they establish the market by slicing off an underserved piece of the market that the leader's not serving. And so usually it starts a really niche thing. But once you're fully established in the niche, the objective is always to push the boundaries of the niche and make the niche bigger until eventually you're so big, you knock off the leader and now you're the leader. Well, once you're the leader, the stuff you can do is different. And so, you know, again, I, I don't know if I like, I, I don't know whether that's the right thing for you to do, yeah, but yeah. I think you could. Yeah, if it's definitely something to. to consider. I, I like it. I appreciate yeah. the food for thought there. <laughs> Go ahead, Ethan. You want to jump in? Yeah. So, April, I know we're running up against the clock here, and you've got, yeah. I think you said five podcasts to record today. So, it's uh, a, I'm, obviously- a, I'm on a podcast thing here. You know, it's a book launch. Sure. This is how it goes. Well, we're uh, we're thrilled to hear it's going well. As um, but uh, one question we always ask our guests, and uh, I think it'd be really Wait, super interesting. Before here. we jump into the final question. I want to I want to get one more question before okay. because we, we started <laughs> sure. a little bit late. So, um, yeah, what what is the most common mistake that you see in positioning? Two things. I'll give you two. The first one is you don't know what it is. You don't care. You fell into the positioning when your product was a baby, and it was obvious what the positioning was. So you just picked it up and ran with it, and that worked really good until three copycat competitors piled into your space and now you're like, oh shit. And you have no idea what to do because you didn't do it deliberately in the first place. So I think not thinking about positioning deliberately is the most common mistake. And you don't know you've made it until your positioning breaks, which it inevitably does. And, you know, because most of the time our positioning is not static. It is changing over time. So every successful software company has gone through iterations on their positioning. And so- you know, it might be good now. I can almost guarantee you five years from now, it'll be different. 10 years from now, it'll be different. So you need to be thinking about it and checking in on it. And then when you see that it's weak, you need to go fix it. So that's one thing. The second thing that I think is really common, and we kind of touched on it before, is this idea of not being clear on who you need to position against. So a lot of companies will, for example, if I ask sales, who's our competition? Sales will give me the list of companies that land on a short list against them and often will over-rotate on the companies that we lose to, even though maybe we should have never been chasing those deals in the first place, to be honest. But that's, that's who they'll say the competition is, even though the data tells us that 40 to 60% of B2B purchase processes end in what? No decision. So who'd you lose to? Well, you, you maybe you lost to status quo, but you didn't consider that competition. Or maybe you lost to the fact that the company was um, indecisive 
and you did a bad job of standing out from all the other alternatives, company couldn't decide which one to pick. So they kicked the can down the road. We lose that like it's 50, 50, one or the other. So that's a problem. And then if you go over to product, product is thinking about the future of the product and the vision and where we're going to, what the roadmap is going and all that stuff. And so product is often tracking a long, long list of competitors that we never see in deals. And so if we tried to position against all of that, that would be a garbage mess mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and impossible to do. And we don't need to position against ghosts. Like if it's not showing up on a customer uh, short list, then we can basically say, well, customer doesn't consider it competition. And so when and if we start losing deals to those folks, we'll worry about positioning against them then. But so that thing of figuring out exactly who is who do you need to position against is, I think, the second biggest mistake that companies make, you know, beyond just not thinking about positioning at all. All right. I'll, I'll ask that final question in April, but I did want to ask one quick follow-up. When you say be, uh, being deliberate on um, on positioning, I, I think that's great advice. How often do you think a company should be thinking about, like have a positioning meeting or reviewing their positioning? Is this every every quarter, every year? So in my when I was a VP marketing in-house, I used to do it every six months. So we used to have a standing meeting every six months. But we would also call the emergency meeting if some stuff was going down. <laughs> so I worked at a company once and we we were uh, we we had this positioning that leaned very heavily on our relationship with MySQL. And then MySQL got acquired by Sun, and then we had to call the emergency meeting. Like, <laughs> oh no, maybe we need to shift the positioning there. And so we did this new positioning, and that was all great for however long it what was it, six months, eight months or something? And then Sun got acquired by Oracle. And not only did they get acquired by Oracle, but like the first thing Oracle said was, Yeah, I don't know what's gonna happen with that MySQL thing. We're like, oh no. So then we had to go, then we had to call the emergency positioning meeting again and go in and do it again. And so you know, I think. Every quarter, if, if a lot of things are happening in your market, maybe every quarter, but I found every six months was more than enough. And what you wanted to do is every six months, get the gang together and just speed run it. We'll bring everybody together and we'll look at sales and say, are we seeing anybody different on the short list than we did six months ago? And if, if, and if we are, who is it? And does that change our list of differentiated capabilities? The other question to ask is, we've had a new release. Does that substantially change our differentiated capabilities to the point where we actually deliver different value now than we could before? And that opens up a section of customers we couldn't before. Well, then we need to go back and adjust the positioning. So it's you know, new competitors coming into the market, it's shift in our own product that could be something. Sometimes there's mergers and acquisitions. And then sometimes it's just general stuff going on in the economy, like COVID hits, maybe you need to get the gang together right. <laughs> and think about how that impacts what you're working on. Like never have I been so busy in my life as I was in 2020. Perfect. All right. So our final question. So what do you feel like you understand about growth or maybe positioning now? that you didn't understand as well a couple of years ago? I think this whole this whole intersection with sales, there was a bunch of things that I assumed happened with most companies in sales that I was just totally wrong about. So this idea that sales folks 
know how to build a pitch or somebody knows how to build a pitch has been very eye-opening to me to discover that no one knows how to build a pitch. Like if you go back and look at all the sales training that salespeople get, it's really interesting what they get trained on. They get trained on how to handle objections, um, how to negotiate a deal, how to build rapport with a client, how to do discovery, how to do qualification, how to move a deal along. Like there's a, like sales training is a big deal. Like it is like they are very well trained people in sales in a way that people in marketing are not. But there is nothing in there related to the pitch. There's this assumption that a pitch just exists. <laughs> and so what you have is marketing assumes that their marketing is like, well, we build them these pitches and we throw it over the wall and nobody uses it. And, and then you say, well, what are they doing? Well, they're just using their own pitch. Well, you go over to sales and they just say, well, marketing gave me this thing, but it doesn't meet any of my requirements. So I just butchered the crap out of it until I had something that kind of works and I'm just using that. And you're like, what? <laughs> That's what's happening over here? Oh. <laughs> so I knew I had built sales pitches when I was internal in companies. But I don't know. I think I just assumed that other companies were better at this and other companies, you know, there was some kind of sales pitch thing that I just hadn't heard about that existed. And so that was really surprising to me. Like if you had asked me five years ago, like you said, April, five years from now, you're going to write a book about how to build a sales pitch. I'd be like, what? That book already exists. Are you nuts? Yeah. And then here's me literally trying to figure out a title for my book. I'm on Amazon. My book people are like, what do you want to call it? And I said, well, I'd like to call it sales pitch, but I'm sure there's a book called that already. So I'm on Amazon and, and there's no book. <laughs> My, how can there be no book? <laughs> like the first book, I would have called it Positioning if someone hadn't have already written a book called Positioning. But this one, I was like, wow, we've never attempted to tackle this problem anyway. So that's been that's been a surprising journey for me. Awesome. Well, obviously awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Name of the first book. Um, so uh, yeah, thank you, April. Usually I like to, to do a, a wrap up of some of the key takeaways, but we'll do that in our introduction because I have a lot of them here and uh, <laughs> we, we can't add another 15 minutes on here of my key takeaways, but um, super helpful conversation. And I, I hope our listeners are able to uh, think about how, how important this can be as a tool to not just not just accelerate growth, but to actually build growth on a, on a good foundation uh, around what the real opportunity is in the business based on feedback from customers and how you uniquely solve some problems. And uh, it's, uh, it, I think it's a, a really important part of growth and ho hopefully the listeners will be able to make that connection. So uh, if not, then we'll have you back and we'll re <laughs> rework on making that connection for them. So uh, <laughs> April, thank you again so much. We really appreciate it. Okay, thanks so well, much. thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.